Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Garrett Boyum, joined with Robert Fry. And today we have an awesome podcast for you, something unique. Um, we are doing a roundtable discussion with several of our previous podcast guests. Uh, we have today for you Caleb Abney, Nick Askew, and Brian Pazos. Uh, I brought all of them together because I thought it would create a really interesting conversation for you guys to uh, listen to. And so we we went really deep into the weeds on hitting, and um, I hope you guys really enjoy it. Um, also, we recently did our first Discord uh, discussion, and so Robert, do you want to kind of tell us how that went since we uh, were kind of in your neck of the woods uh, diving into analytics? Yeah, so I feel like it went great. We talked about kind of the importance of analytics in amateur baseball, specifically high school and college. So it was a great discussion, and I'm excited for more future discussions, and I hope you all can join us in the future. Awesome. So I hope you guys enjoy our conversation uh, with our group of guests. Thank you all for coming on the podcast. Uh, we have an awesome lineup of great hitting coaches. Do you guys want to kind of go around and just quickly, briefly introduce yourself um, for for the listeners? We'll start with uh, Robert, co-host Robert. Hey, I'm Robert. Uh, not necessarily a hitting guy, but hey, I view kind of the analytics side of hitting. So I think I can provide some value there and insight. Yeah, Nick Askew, currently an assistant baseball coach at Bowling Green State University, and I'm a hitting coach and catching coach. Caleb Abney, uh, I've, I've kind of worked a little bit of everywhere. Um, worked in college baseball, worked in pro ball with the Minnesota Twins. Um, uh, passion about athletic hitters. Um, Brian Pozos, uh, spent the last year and a half at 108 and then – Looking forward to working with infield and hitters this fall, uh, hopefully in the JUCO setting. I think, Brian, you actually had a really great post recently um, asking like a really good question. You kind of want to rehash that and some of the cool things that came out of that, that uh, one hitting post. Um, yeah, I think it, it mostly started with my own frustrations with, you know, you go on Twitter and everyone seems to have an answer. And as a hitter, that wasn't true for me. You know, something works for you for a day or two, maybe a week. And then after that, it's like, you know, where did my swing go? Um, and I think asking the right questions can kind of lead people to discover things on their own rather than like being told what to do or how to do something. Um, and you think of it as like when you're a kid, you don't want somebody else to be responsible for your success. Like you wanted to have uh, a part in that. Um, so I think as a coach, if you can ask the right questions, you kind of give, you know, the guys an opportunity to, to find out what's important to them. How about you guys? Like what is, what is baseball missing? I suppose when it comes to hitting, like what things do you feel like they're not talking enough about or should be talking about more? I'll, I'll 
to kind of kill two birds with one stone, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of piggyback, piggyback off of what Brian said and also kind of maybe answer that question a little bit, Garrett. Um, I think uh, it was a really good point that he made about uh, a, a lot of people seeming to have too many answers and aren't asking enough questions. Um, and my response to that, my immediate thought, um, and this kind of ties in with what you were asking, Garrett, is uh, having a certain amount of intellectual humility and kind of realizing that we are not going to have all the answers. And many times the answers that we think that we currently have, um, <laughs> not so far down the road, we're probably going to be proven wrong in some way, shape or form. And many times it's going to be, um, uh, we're going to be proven glaringly wrong. So, um, I think anytime that we're asking questions, uh, which we should be asking questions, uh, it's with the understanding that the answers need to be fluid and the answers need to be, uh, tailored to a specific situation, a, a specific environment. And when you try to come up with a specific way of going about things without acknowledging, uh, your ability to fail and how you're approaching something or, uh, the advice that you're giving or the programming that you're giving or however you want to answer things in such certain terms, um, that's a very dangerous road to go down. And I think all of us can remember from back when we were players feeling like Brian did. Um, and many times, unfortunately, that is the result of a coach that is uh, telling you exactly what you think, exactly what you should feel, exactly how you should move, um, which it was it is almost 100% of the time it's a subjective opinion that you are basing your career on. Um, so I think as coaches, it's important for us to learn from that and to make sure that we approach players and development and pushing this game forward in general with uh, as much humility as we possibly can and to realize that we're, we're not always going to have the answers. So I think um, that that may be the thing that that I that is the sense that I get that many people in the baseball community today are lacking is that humility and that ability to take a step back and realize, hey, uh, I've I've been wrong before, and there's a decent chance that I'm wrong right now. So um, how 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 can I find a way to be less wrong right now, and also being open to the fact that there there could be a different answer moving forward in the future. Hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a great answer. And I know that we've had a lot of conversation um, related to that topic too, Caleb. And um, I think I could um, try to answer a little bit of both there. Going back to the tweet from Brian, I did see that. And I seen your um, retweet there, Garrett. I think you said your question would be um, that maybe as coaches, we need to ask ourselves a little bit more is what information are the players connecting to? And, you know, the question that has been on my mind, kind of to answer the, again, that the first question there is, you know, you know, what do your or our constraints afford or invite for action? That's really been on my mind here recently, um, especially um, as it relates to representative task design, you know, especially at Chad's trying new things and, and uh, working with some high school guys. So, um, that, that question has been on my mind recently. And then moving forward to what you just asked and what Caleb was um, answering there, I would, I would come wholeheartedly agree with Caleb. And again, you know, we've had those conversations, you know, years ago, man, like 
you know, when we were at Covenant and, and with the Watertown Rapids, you know, just how, how can we have this um, conviction and, and complete confidence that what we are saying and doing um, is indisputable and um, holistically logical and um, really just indisputable. And, and a lot of times we really don't have that support or evidence. So it, it does position us, read position us into a um, position of humility. And, and I think that that's one area. And I think the other area is, um, you know, maybe what the baseball community could benefit from is using more of a systems thinking. And, and I know that that's a pre- prevalent concept in ecological psychology rather than a lineal, a linear um, viewpoint. So, and I'm just basically, you're, you're not, you're not viewing this player and his actions in isolation of the context. You're not, you're not um, separating the pitch um, or other characteristics about the action. You're viewing um, all of the, the parts or the components of that action um, in context. You're viewing it all together. You're not cutting it up and viewing it, um, you know, in, in isolation. Um, so I think those two things are, um, are things that maybe we could benefit a lot more from. Do you want to kind of explain a little bit, um, maybe some of the nuances of systems thinking versus, I guess, as I understand it, a more reductionist, um, thought process? Yeah, I think from, uh, I think from like a dynamic systems theory standpoint, like there are a number of um, subsystems or component parts that are working and operating independent and also interacting together with one another. And we can't fully understand how complex systems self-organize or fall into this attractor state without understanding how, you know, like what constraints are acting on that system. So like we can't possibly explain, you know, motor action of a hitter um, if we remove the pitch um, from the hitter or remove other information from the hitter, um, such as understanding what his task was in that given situation. What were the constraints on that hitter um, that, that that led to the emergence of that motor action. So I think to kind of keep this simple, I think uh, we were talking about this, like in, in terms of explaining movement, I think it's important to not only have knowledge of results and have knowledge of performance, but also having knowledge of constraints, like those three things. I think a lot of times we can get caught up in understanding like, you know, what are his batted ball results? Well, that's great, but you also need to look at the performance or the the actual actual motor action that kind of produced that um, that batted ball. But also considering the task constraints and also the environmental and physical constraints. So I think that's how I would look at a systems thinking is like you're not looking at one source of information; you're looking at the big picture. Yeah. And the one thing that I would add there uh, briefly is that it's about the relationship between the different parts. Um, Like we're looking at how do different um, things relate to one another? How does the body and the movements relate to the cognitive? How does the cognitive slash um, 
the body relate to the environment? How do all these parts relate to one another and how are they connected? Um, at least that's my understanding of like systems thinking versus more of a reductionist approach is looking at the interactions between and what causes what versus what is the relationship um, between all these different varying components. Um, so I'm kind of curious to like what other things that similarly, you know, also interest or have um, been on your guys' mind before I asked a more specific one or Robert, do you have something that you want to throw out there? Yeah. So I was on a uh, podcast with uh, Donnie Ecker, one of the San Francisco Giants hitting coaches. Um, so a lot of the stuff that he brought up was actually very interesting. So one thing that he kind of brought to light was you know, creating this deeper sense of meaning for these hitters and understanding that, you know, they don't ha have as much control over things as they typically might have control over. They, he basically tells them, hey, you know, understand what you can do and what you're good at. And just, again, he just keeps mentioning double down strengths, double down on um, how quickly you can build those strengths and how how much you can just play off of those strengths. Uh, I, I think I wanted to add to that, like, I heard this somewhere else, but it was like, to think of the things that you actually have control over. Like, you tell yourself you're going to stop eating junk food. You tell yourself you're going to stop swinging a certain pitch, and you don't even have control over that, right? Like, let alone movements and how complex they can be. So I think like, you know, I was listening to some of the things that, that he was saying, that Donnie was saying on that uh, stick and ball TV uh, Zoom call. And it, it was just interesting because um, kind of to Nick's point about all the factors that live within a system and, and how they relate to one another. A lot of the things that, that Donnie was discussing in terms of like getting to see the world as they see it as each individual season it's like that's so important to to understand like how that kid's going to deal with success or failure how that kid's going to you know perceive every single cue right like there's there's those kids that as soon as you open your mouth they assume they did something wrong so there there's got to be a way to navigate that um in terms of understanding what that athlete you know knows is in, within their control and then the things that they think they can control and and are beyond that. So I think, you know, it, it, to me, that, that's been one of the most interesting things that I've been thinking about is, you know, trying to get a picture for the things they find important. And then, you know, the things that pull them off track with something else, Donnie said, like, what are, what are the things that kind of, you know, get them to lose focus quickly? And, you know, how does all of that play into each individual process for those athletes? I think that, yeah, that just continues to speak more to, uh, you know, kind of the theme that we're talking about here, the, the whole view, viewing the system in its entirety and seeing the, the, the athlete and specifically the hitter as a human being that has all kinds of different things that can go wrong, all kinds of different things that if you try to isolate one thing out of that entire system, it, it, 
there's a decent chance it's going to affect something else and there could be a chain reaction that could lead to his lack of success moving moving forward so it's 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 considering everything holistically it's not just mechanically it's psychologically it's mentality wise it's 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 what he's trying to accomplish it's it's how well his body is recovered it's if he went out the night before and got hammered or whatever's going on in his life that could that could potentially affect his performance um and uh taking every single one of those things into account um before diagnosing a perceived problem or a perceived flaw um that then uh you know, the hitter is supposed to go and try to solve that one individual thing in isolation and then expect that, Oh, I'm fixed now. And now I can go on about my business and now I'm going to be an all-star caliber player. Um, it's, it's taking all those things in, into account. And I think we can all agree on this. The best way to go about changing those things is by attacking them as a whole, um, and doing it within the environment. Um, so that those things are able to play off of one another. And if they do change, they don't change independently. They change um, together so that uh, it has a chance to be more lasting change. And I think to your point, like how many people have we seen since, you know, our conversations about, you know, all the factors in the environment, I think they assume that we're devaluing mechanics, right? Like that's something we've seen. It's like, oh, well, these guys don't think mechanics are important. It's like, well, of course these movements are important. Like, but I think the thing that's more important to me and something that, that you said, Caleb, is like, we want to see athletic movement. Like we want to see natural movement. And, and if we're trying so hard to focus on creating, you know, a specific set of mechanics, it's like you're limiting like the athletic ability of that individual. And, and even if you tell them something's good, it's like, well, now they're trying to repeat something and then they're restricted within what they think is correct rather than, you know, being free to explore beyond that. Um, but yeah, I think it, I think we're all kind of clear on the idea that mechanics are important, but, but how you achieve more efficient movements, like is different than how we dictate them or how we try to quote unquote teach some, you know, some hit or certain moves. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, cause too, the other thing that I was thinking on this was that it comes down to the, like, I think a lot of the, like, the environment and the connection of the information in the environment. I think that's, that's a huge component of it. And then to like, as you were talking about the limiting their options, I think we want to, we want them to be more connected and stay in the moment to like the information, what's going on there. And that way, then they're not overly focused on like necessarily trying to repeat that. And like, that's where I like the, the idea and the notion of like rep without rep. Like if people understand that it's, it's really hard to create a carbon copy of the past and recreate it in the present. Um, and and if we can understand that, then we can move beyond that and try to be more in the present and tr- more focused on like, hey, how can I focus on based upon like, what is my intention right here and executing on that and being okay with it looking different? Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll speak a little bit to that point. I, I think what what gets so tough from a more of a traditional standpoint, and this isn't even just exclusive to baseball, but 
but I feel like it's very prevalent in uh, the baseball community, whether it's hitting or pitching, or, I mean, it's really started to translate over into infield play and base running and, and some outfield as well. But the, the reliance and the worship of video um, and that is not in any way to, to say that there's nothing that you can gather from video and that, and there's nothing that we can figure out about uh, how an, an elite mover moves um, or to see what the best hitters are doing. I, I, the disclaimer up front is I believe every coach should be doing that and trying to learn as much as they possibly can about those things so that they have those tools in their toolbox to know what to look for and to know what to kind of know what the 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 general archetypes look like but i think we have we 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 crossed over into this territory a long time ago that i think a lot of coaches don't want to let go of we want to compare everything to video and we want to make sure that everything looks like a certain video and we want to dismiss things that don't look good on video and video to me uh it in inherently the whole point of it is to place the entire focus on the movement because it tells you nothing about someone's intention. It tells you nothing about what he's perceiving. It tells you nothing about what he's thinking, uh, nothing about a previous pitch and the at bat um, or how he has interacted with that pitcher before or any details. It is literally just focusing on what it looks like. Um, and I think the struggle with a lot of coaches and, and I've, and I've run into this issue when I've told people, uh, multiple times I've told people, I, I don't place a ton of value on just straight up looking at video and seeing what a, a movement looks like. Does that mean that I can't gather anything from it? Of course not. Um, but in placing everything in it and trying to, trying to replicate something that looks a certain way especially when you can find plenty of examples of something that doesn't look that way, but you still find, but you still see hitters finding success. Um, I, I just don't know what you do with those examples that don't fit that narrative, but I think it's, it, it's a struggle for coaches in the baseball community to let go of that because I mean, we still see it on Twitter. I mean, and, and uh, like I, like I share videos too. Um, but when, 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 when people are sharing videos and, and analyzing videos specifically to look at the um, mechanical analysis so that they can then try to infer some sort of uh, statement or truth from that, um, it's really hard for people in the baseball community to get away from that. But I also feel like that's something that has the potential to, if we can start to move away from that and start to place a little less emphasis on that, we can place more emphasis on the environment, more emphasis on athleticism, the perception, the intention, and how all those things work together on a systems level. I guess too, I guess the question comes back to like technique. Cause I think that's why, I think the reason why we're so focused on that is, is that there's a hyper focus on technique and technique being the solution to the problem. Like if you have the right technique, then you'll be able to solve the problem at a higher rate or a higher clip. And I think that's where, I guess, first I would want to get your guys's take on that. Um, I mean, cause I know personally for me, like that's something that I've had to unlearn um, because like I grew up around that, like my dad was, uh, into martial arts and so like he was very focused and always talked about the importance of technique. And, and so 
I guess that's where I understand like that's so ingrained in our culture, like across in some regards, across cultures, like we were looking at videos of Japanese players earlier. And I think that is also part of their culture there as well, like the importance of technique, but it transcends um, sports. It's not just unique to baseball, like all sports are thinking about it in this way. And so I guess I'm curious of your guys' take on technique and where you guys kind of stand on that currently. Um, and maybe too, if, if it's changed over time, what is, how has it evolved? Sure. I can, um, head this one. Um, I think for me, I think probably alike all of you guys have kind of grown up sharing that same perspective on, um, beginning with technique before the tactic. Um, in other words, you know, using the, uh, ecological side of it, you could say starting with the solution before you realize what the problem is. And quickly we can see what the problem with that is, is, you know, how could you possibly start with the solution if you've not, um, completely identified what the problem is, um, what exactly you're trying to solve for. Um, but, my first thought, and you know, I always go back to this. I think it's pretty default for me, is to just go back to the Bruce Lee quote. Um, you know, my technique is is uh, according to your technique, or even even I think at the beginning of that quote is like the highest technique is to have no wow. technique. You know, my my movement is is uh, is according to your movement, and uh, there's also I think another quote related to being like water, right? Just being able to. Uh, adjust or adapt to under any set of circumstances. Um, so, and, and, you know, I, Brian said it and, you know, I, I've said it and I think you all have said it this, you know, it, it's not that we're dismissing technique or we undervalue technique. It's just how we, what our position or stance is on how that motor behavior is acquired. Um, and, 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 where it exists, you know, context is what gives meaning to that technique, you know, context, um, lets us understand when and where it gives us a temporal and also a spatial component to the actual technique rather than like we're mentioning here is, um, earlier is just it acting in isolation of its context, which again, cannot be completely understood or explained. Um, so, my take on it um, is basically just utilizing um, the constraint-led approach to um, kind of restrict, um, you know, a, a set of configurations or uh, swing characteristics that would help them accomplish the task. Um, and um, just being able to use those constraints wisely and, and not, not to the degree where they become dependent on those constraints. Um, but something that they learn to, um, move according or, or self-organize according to those, um, constraints. And, and again, I think, um, you, we have to ask ourselves, like, what do our constraints afford in terms of action? So I, I think it comes down to like being able to, um, be a, uh, constraint designer or, or environment designer. I'm curious your guys' thoughts on how specific does your um, training environment or, or training task have to be and 
like, or how general can it be in order for it to be successful? I know that that's been a debate on the, um, ecological dynamics, um, colleagues of mine that have been talking with each other, we've kind of debated that. And I think, um, I'm curious your guys' thoughts on that subject. Do you mind sharing first what kind of some of that conversation has been and on what scale that the majority of them tend to lean on as far as general to specific and if there's any reason why? I think it's, it's one, it's complicated when you get into the, to the last portion of your question, but it's relatively simple on the front end. And so when it comes to like how general or specific, the question becomes like, does the environment need to be highly specific? Like the information in it, does it need to really look and feel like the game? So like on a representativeness level, um, 10 being the game itself, it representing the game a hundred percent, um, to all the way that it looks nothing like the game and not even related being like extremely general. And I think, you know, in, when I think about the conversations that we've had, like me and you, Caleb, it seems as though some of the things that we've, that like you'll do to help athletes be more adaptable, um, is not very specific, meaning it, it doesn't perfectly represent the game. And I think the question when it comes to this and, and conversations that I've, I've watched occur and have had myself is, does it need to be a hundred percent? And it, there are lots of reasons for why it's concerning if it's not representative in terms of it might not have transfer or it might, I would say like to kind of dumb it down and say it as plainly as possible, it might create bad habits. You know, if they practice too much in a, in a non-representative environment, that's uh, too different from the game itself. Like that's, that's the feel that I have of the concern that my colleagues have of it not being as having it be less representative. Um, and so that's kind of the, the debate currently with this is like, well, how representative is representative enough? And is it detrimental to work too much on the general side of the spectrum? Where my mind immediately goes with that is, would you consider it? So let's just take a professional baseball hitter, for example if that professional baseball hitter had a hobby of liking to play tennis and he was a very good tennis player, or maybe he wasn't Mm -hmm. a good good tennis player, but he just liked to play tennis. Would we generally perceive that as something that is going to be a detriment to his hitting skill? Is that something that is going to put him in a bad habit because he, he plays tennis on a regular basis or maybe a better example all kinds of golfers or all kinds of baseball players play golf regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's two, it's two similar movements, but separate obviously in the environment that you're in and the, the exact specific ability to be precise with the object that you're using. And obviously the side of the ball, like all kinds of different implications as far as the problem that you're trying to solve. But, but we don't really think about it. And, and I guess maybe traditionally, 
I don't know about you guys, but I heard this. Uh, I always heard this growing up. Oh, well, the golf swing isn't like the baseball swing. So you don't want to play golf too much in season because it'll mess up your baseball swing or vice versa. You can't swing a, a golf club like you do a baseball bat because then you won't be able to be successful. Like I always heard that stuff growing up. And I, I guess in answer to that, I would say, do we feel that playing other sports is a detriment to a specific skill that you're trying to improve in this case, baseball or, and this is kind of the direction that I tend to lean on just my own personal perspective, or do we consider doing those other types of sports, particular in a case where we're swinging a bat or a club or a racket um, to actually be, be helping each other in certain circumstances, because we're building not only rotational power, we're building stability, we're building hand-eye coordination, we're building the ability to be precise, we're building athleticism in general with different types of implements uh, that we might be able to use some of those movements in, in, in uh, an environment that is as dynamic as hitting is. Um, and I would, I would go a step further and, and, and say even playing those sports um, and playing other sports and doing other things, I mean, I'll throw cricket into the mix, I'll throw ping pong into the mix. Um, like could like are things that we should be doing um, that could help. I, I feel like a lot of hitters develop that athleticism because when it comes to hitting, we need to use whatever that we possibly can get our hands on in the forms of athleticism and the ability to adjust and the ability to be precise with our barrels, whatever we can get our hands on to help us accomplish the task. We need to have that in our movement toolbox. So I, I think in, in, in the question of general to specific, I think as many general skills as you can develop from an athletic standpoint can only help you when you do have to be more specific. Now that's not to say that you don't do things that are specific and replicate the game as often as possible. And I'm a big believer in hitters getting as many live ABs they possibly can. I'm a believer in throwing short boxes and mix, mix BP and throwing high VLO BP from really close distances and all that stuff that replicates the game very closely. But I don't think it has to be either or I think it can be both. And I think it should be both if we really want to develop dynamic moving athletes in the batter's box. Yeah. And I, I think I want to, I want to add to that because I think the conversation about like transfer kind of goes, it's popular right now, right? Like a lot of people hate T work and it's like, well, the T isn't very representative and I think for good reason, right? So if there's little transfer there, I think, the task is going to dictate, or at least how you view the task is going to dictate, you know, what skills transfer over. Like, let's say if you're looking at the technique of the swing and let's say, oh, the golf swing might change the baseball swing. Like, I mean, I agree in the point that it's not one or the other. Like, I think the golf swing might improve, you know, body awareness and awareness to what's happening to the ball when you hit it. I think that's something important to transfer over to when you don't have someone to flip or throw to you and you're, you're by yourself with the tee, like that, that's a skill that I think is useful. Um, with tennis, like for infielders, like I think that's huge. It's like change of direction, like be able to react to a moving ball with different spin. Um, and and I think all of these incorporate an aspect of, of you know, tracking a ball and, and letting your movements be dictated by whatever your eyes are doing. Like it, it's to me, it's it's not uh, surprising that a lot of baseball players like love ping pong and are good at ping pong. Like, you know, they're tracking a ball. And, and at that point, you know, you're you're 
you're letting movements be dictated by whatever the task is. So, I mean, I see it as something that, that provides perspective, right? Like, like if we think of, okay, well, you never really want to top spin baseballs like the way you want to top spin tennis balls. Like if you think that's, what's going to transfer, I think, unfortunately, like that's what might, right? Like a kid's going to see it as something that hurts his swing. Like maybe it does hurt his swing. Um, if a kid doesn't think it's going to hurt his swing, then, then I don't think it will. Um, there is a, a guy I played with in summer ball my sophomore year and we we're all doing T work. And instead of picking up the balls at the end of the cage, like he would just leave the balls on the floor and then like take golf strokes to all of these baseballs. And he was dead serious of like, you know, if you can do this to a baseball on the floor, like you can hit in a game. And like at the time I, I didn't, I didn't think it was important, but you know, I, I've heard, uh, I think I or in Swing Kings, I think Doug Lotta talks about, you know, telling the, the, the uh, Jared Diamond, like, hey, like, keep your head down when you swing. It's like, maybe that's something that's associated with technique. But to me, I associate it closer to vision. And like, you know, if you're keeping your eyes, you know, where the point of contact is, like, maybe you have a little bit more fluid swing. Um, so I think like, you know, to see them as different things, like it can hurt you more than seeing like how all of it can be useful to an athlete. I mean, yeah. And too, Brian, I think you can speak to the fact of the question becomes how much time are we spending on these things? Right. So if you're, if you, if you're specifically trying to focus on improving like hitting, but yet you're not doing things that look and feel like hitting um, or like the, the practice environment is too general I think that can be problematic. I think, you know, what my, what the debate is, as I've seen it between um, giants in the field, so to speak, is the question of, are we practicing in doing these different things, specific and general? Are we practicing um, the process of um, problem solving, like solving movement problems and that process of, trying to really connect with the environment and the information in the environment um, to guide our actions and stuff. And so through that process of like learning how that mind body environment connection works and getting into that state um, can transfer to the, the actual game. But then the question becomes on the other side is, but the movements are always context specific. So your ability to pick up the information that's going to help you be successful is very contextual. So to some extent, becoming attuned to the wrong information um, and picking up the wrong information and then trying to utilize that same strategy in the actual competitive event that you're actually training for can be detrimental in the way that you were talking about, Brian, in terms of like, okay, now you're used to um, this sort of movement solution when it comes to hitting a ball and like the intention and your association in your mind is with um, hooking it or putting a certain type of spin on it if we're talking about like tennis, so to speak. And then that could have negative transfer. Same thing with like a golf swing or something like that. But at the same point, there's there's also good evidence to show that, you know, thinking about, you know, a low pitch coming in being like trying to hit a ball like a golf ball 
and actually like using that type of movement to actually drive the ball on a line um, to the gap, so to speak. And so I think it goes both ways, but I do think the the point on the other side is that the information is contextual and then the movements are contextual. So you might not even get any transfer from golf to baseball. And that's why you see sometimes guys have certain moves when they golf that don't show up when they hit because to them and their, their system, like they're two completely separate contexts. Um, but it also seems like sometimes the system doesn't disassociate and thinks they're similar and there you see some carryover that can sometimes be negative. And so I don't think it's a easy black and white issue, but that's why I wanted to get your guys's kind of take on it. Yeah. I, I think those are all really good points. And, um, I have some very similar ideas with, with what you guys are, um, alluding to there. The first thing, you know, just kind of from listening to you guys and your thoughts on, on the question, um, one of the first things that came to my mind um, was just Caleb referring to the tennis and the golf and then Brian as well and, and uh, you, Garrett. It's like it just reminded me of that concept of differential learning. And although those tasks may not transfer, what could potentially be an effect from those tasks or a motor abundance, right? Being able to like uh, solve the degree of freedom problem in a different task, like sure, like maybe you don't ever want to top spin a baseball. However, like that, like that differential learning or that repetition without repetition approach, it really disrupts the system. And, and, and that task really requires um, a coordination pattern um, you know, or configuration to kind of solve that motor problem. So I, although I don't know that it would transfer into, uh, the context of baseball, I would say that it could potentially have positive effects on, um, you know, you know, that, uh, achieving that, that concept of degeneracy or, you know, just the motor abundance. Um, and the other thing, I was, you know, going back to the original question about like understanding and kind of navigating the the waters of general to specific, you know, I started to think about like the concept of contextual interference. We talked about that at the ABCA. I remember us two were mm-hmm. kind of like kind of digging deeper with that. And and I, that basically what, what Brian was talking about and Caleb was especially in terms of transfer, um, you know, like obviously the, the greater levels of interference, um, the greater potential for transfer, um, you know, and, and then, you know, moving from there, it's like, you know, this, this interference is, I think is referring to that action, that the two parts of the representative task design, that actual action fidelity, and then that, um, functionality, the information and the action, like, like how much of the information and how much of the action, you know, should, should exist in this task. Like, and looking at this from a general standpoint, like what came to my mind was like, um, you know, something we do, you know, with hitters in a, in a, um, daily routine, which is like a mobility workout. Um, hitters will do, you know, uh, uh, overhead squat circuit for mobility and they'll use the, um, Marv band and, um, TRX ripstick trainer. Now those trainers, those tools are, were designed to, um, 
or, you know, designed to help players um, move in a way that's going to be related to uh, swinging the bat. Like we, we know, and we've put these together because uh, we understand that there's correlation between rotational power and batting performance. So, but that's a very general move. We know that like there's no information when you're using a band, you right. There's, there's, there's really, there's hardly, there's really limited action. It doesn't, it doesn't represent accurately the, the full picture of a swing, but there's rotation, right? That's a, that's a general move. And, um, and then moving to the other end, you know, the being as, as, um, specific as possible, of course, is just, you know, in practice setting, just facing your, your, uh, your teammates, um, or a coach in a short box or, a um, you know, a, a student manager and being able to do those things. But, you know, getting to what you were talking about, which it was another thing that I had in mind was the frequency. So like in our daily routine, it's like, how much do we do of each? And I think like, that's the question. Like how much, like, how much of each do we do? Is there any way to add information that a player can connect to in more of a mobility session? Or, you know, like how do you, how do you make those more representative and do you, do you make those, um, do you add more information to those, um, exercises? So I think those are my thoughts on, you know, what you were talking about in terms of being general to specific. And two on that like note of like, okay, do we, do we add like tossing a ball in and them catching it with their hand? You know, like, like, is that, I want to say that there can be some benefit to it, but I also want to not like, I also don't think that like there's a ton of benefit to it. Like at the, at the same point, like it can be the right solution for the right guy, but because I think it's on a spectrum, like so much of two of what I've heard, like my colleagues talk about is it's, it's going to be very specific to the individual. Like you have to put whatever you're doing in the context of that individual and I think, Nick, it was maybe a conversation that we were having with somebody else, uh, potentially. Um, but like it, it's going to be, we really want to look at it as in terms of a spectrum of like, okay, maybe what is the athlete missing or needing? Like, so if they're doing a ton of specific work, maybe their, their attractor wells are getting too deep and like um, too narrow. And so they're getting stuck and then like the system needs more novelty. And so we need to introduce some level of um, exploration or novelty and generality into what they're doing simply so that it enhances when they go back to the specific work, their system has more degrees of freedom to work with because they were getting too, uh, they're becoming too limited by doing all of that repetitiveness but I think too, the other thing is, is that I think what my, the, the other side of the argument would be, well, what if you just changed the, you manipulated the constraints within the highly representative environment? Because if you manipulate the constraints and you change up maybe what they're searching for, it might actually open up degrees of freedom. So like, that's where to me, it's a, it's, it's a challenging thing. But when I listened to, and when I remember back to what I remember hearing about Bondarchuk's system and one of the guys that was implementing it, he said, we always had to do GPP work just for the health of the athlete. Because if we got away from doing like the general preparatory work, um, the athletes tended to get injured more. 
And so we, we still have that as a component. And I think to me, what I took away from that is, okay, we still need to have some sort of novelty, some flow work, something that is maybe general, maybe it's tennis or whatever, something that's different and it's just them moving differently so that from a health standpoint, their system um, is getting exposed to other things because it, it craves novelty to a certain extent. I think it's all where you, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, talking about um, their ability to attune becoming too, too narrow because I mean, let's say we wanted everything to be super specific with, you know, when we're, when we're training a hitter, whether it's him training for, uh, you know, actually in a game, or even if he's doing work in the weight room, we would literally, he would literally only ever take live at bats against a pitcher throwing full speed. And if he was doing work in the weight room, it would be 100% swinging weighted bats. Like he would just do the same movement over and over and over and over and over and over again. And you might throw, throw a ball at him because you're trying to make his weight, his weight training movements as specific to the game as possible. Clearly nobody would prescribed programming where those are the only two things that a hitter would do. So there's an arbitrary line and it's subjective where I think that's kind of what we're talking about here. It's a subjective line that everybody chooses to draw. Uh, and it's wherever you lie on that line, um, on that spectrum, as far as how much you want to, uh, include general work, whether it's movement or if it's general work that, that is leaning a little bit on the hitting side, maybe you do some quote unquote drill work, um, that isn't exactly uh, facing a pitcher at game speed from from uh, the mound. I mean, we kind of alluded to to, to some of those things that we can do, um, but I just think it's up to the individual developer and and coach and hitter what he feels like he needs. Um, the first thing that came to my mind, Garrett, when 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 you were talking about uh, hitters or athletes in general that develop too narrow of a scope of their ability to attune is a very well-known phraseology in the hitting world of a groove swing. So if we just wanted to go super specific with everything that we would do, and there are actually many coaches, many coaches, and I could get really fired up talking about this for a while. So I'm going to try to keep it under wraps a little bit, but um, there are many coaches that still believe in only training on pitches that are in the very middle of the strike zone and then try to work out from there. And uh, to me, that was the first thing that I thought of when you were talking about limiting that scope to being so narrow uh, to where we're so specific with our swing that we're working in that tiny little box and hoping that a pitcher throws it there. Um, so I think that's where it's up to the individual coach and the player, when they want to determine exactly how far outside of that middle, which is the ideal, that they want to work. So uh, it, it's just up to the individual person as far as how difficult they want to make that um, and exactly where they draw the line. Personally, my opinion, I'm likely going to draw the line a little more closer to the general side while trying to work as many specific um uh, task work as I possibly can. Um, so I guess I kind of want it all. Um, but if, if, if I'm leaning on in a direction of everything being super, 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 super specific and being in one part of the strike zone or exactly like one swing or going more general to develop the athleticism. And like I said earlier, the movement toolbox that a hitter could utilize to be able to get to all kinds of different pitches, 
I just me personally, I'm going to lean in that direction to develop that overall athleticism that gives him more options when he's in that moment. Yeah. So that brings up kind of the interesting question that I want to ask. Okay. Let's say you do have the data available to you where it tells you, okay, do you pit, how frequently does a pitcher pitch against you to the outside, to the middle, to the inner third, so on and so forth. So I guess it comes in the question of me asking, and I'm curious to hear everybody's thoughts, you know, how would you set a training environment if you said had that data available where, you know, let's say uh, a right-handed batter gets, a specific right-handed batter gets 35% of pitches on the outer third of the plate. He gets 20% of pitches on you know down in the middle third of the plate and he gets the remaining percentage uh in the inner third of the plate so my question is how how do you set that kind of training environment and where where is that does that lean in terms of general and specific i kind of i had a few thoughts on this because i think uh a while back we had this discussion on twitter that 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 kind of blew up there i was discussing the difference between pitching and hitting development and of course like everyone was like oh well the difference is like you know training open versus closed skill and and for me the point was missed it was it was the fact that okay the pitchers are able to have a little bit more uh, of a straightforward approach of what they would like to do because the ball is in their hands so i think like to your point robert it's like I had this conversation with a hitter actually, and he's, you know, he's getting a lot more off speed. It's like, you're in the four hole. Of course, you're getting a lot more off speed and they're staying soft away. And, and when they do come in, it's like way in or way up in the zone. Um, but he insisted on like, I want to work on middle and then middle in. And, and I think in that, in that sense, you can't as a hitter decide what you would like to work on so much as like, Okay, what are you what are you getting right now? Because in the middle of season, like, you know, you can try and go along the road of like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go and try and really get good at this middle, middle in pitch. And then when I get it, I'm going to crush it. It's like, you've put in all this work. And then what if you never get that pitch versus like, what are you getting? So I think it, it always has to be accounted for of like what pitchers are trying to do to you. And I, and I think, you know, that's where like, you have to understand how, your unique abilities match up with what you're also getting. So let's say to Caleb's point of like, okay, everyone's training, like what's middle to the outer parts of the zone. Like if you're a guy that can get to these pitches, like you can adjust in, you can adjust out, you can chase a slider that's almost in the dirt and still put bat on it or the bat on the ball. Like you're a guy, I'm not going to, you know, have shrink the zone, at least if I'm in a team setting. But if you're a guy who has poor play discipline and you're swinging at everything outside of the zone, like, like maybe he's a different individual who needs a different tailored approach. Um, but I think it, it has to start with, you know, a pitcher. And I, and I think that even transfers to movements like um, in the, in the private setting, something I got, I had a lot of fun doing it, but when I would throw BP, I got kind of sick of the, Oh, like, you know, one more, one more, one more, like every other guy who's throwing BP, like kind of gets sick of and, and so what I would start to do was every time they got a barrel, I would either change from the stretch to a windup. And then each each windup or stretch guy, like it was a different pitcher, like it was either fastball curveball or fastball slider. And so they didn't have a chance to sit there and try and perfect a setup or a forward move. Like 
you're you're repeating that process and this this goes into the rep uh, rep without rep thing is you're repeating the process of every single first pitch and treating things pitch to pitch because you don't have an opportunity to sit there and be like all right let me try and get this again versus like well a different pitch is coming uh, a different pitcher with a different strategy is coming and then how do we organize to try and meet that task so I kind of went long-winded there, but I think it does it does start with the pitcher and and understanding what is trying to be done to you as a hitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's a great question, Robert. Um, and you know, I I definitely on the position or side of of believing that um, information is regulating action. I I do like utilizing percentages in a training environment. But I also like to consider maybe f- more factors um, f- for for that percentage. For instance, like you know, w- w- in what count is he throwing away, and you know, is it, in, in what count is he um, throwing fastballs or any other characteristics of the pitch that you want to mention? Um, and I even I think I use an example in uh, one of the blogs that I wrote. In, in task number two was, or task number one was basically providing some pitch tendency information for the hitter to help that guide their action. Um, so they know when a pitcher, this particular pitcher, if he's ahead in the count um, to a right-handed hitter, then he's going to throw two seam fastballs and sliders um, down and away to right-handed hitters. So I do like utilizing that information set. Um, but I also like removing that information set and requiring a greater level of, of adaptability or adjustability. They, it, it requires them to, um, you know, reorganize and recalibrate every pitch. They, they really don't have that information that would help guide their action um, if you remove it. And I think that kind of goes back to like how specific do we want to be? Like, and, you know, if we usually you have that type of information as a hitting coach going into a game and you can provide that information and a hitter can use that information if he, if he wants um, to guide his action. Um, but also if you remove that, it makes it more difficult. So that's, I guess that could, that could be part of that, you know, specific, um, question, but, um, yeah, I, I do like using it. And I, one thing that I, that I, uh, tell our guys all the time is like, it's a, it's a three player game. Like it's the umpire, you and the pitcher, it's not a one player game. So I do like using it. Do you want to kind of expand on that last piece of it not being a one-player game and and the interaction between at least you threw in the umpire there? Like I think that's that's something that I – like most people can understand pitcher, but like what do you mean by like adding that third component in there? Yeah, we talked a little bit about this on the podcast we did um, a couple months ago and – try to keep this concise. What I mean about this is basically understanding that the umpire has his, um, has his bias or his individual strike zone. The pitcher has his individual pitch zone and the hitter has his individual hit zone. Like all three are interacting or should be interacting with one another, um, not in isolation of one another. They're, a hitter's action, optimally speaking, um, could 
it could be optimal if they were interacting with, with the other two parties. For instance, like if you were to overlay the strike zone tendencies of an umpire uh, with the pitcher's pitch tendencies um, and then the hitter's um, hot zones, you're going to, you're going to be able to identify, okay, but this is to assume that the pitcher is also using this game theory approach that he's thinking, um, for optimal payoffs. Um, so like if you were to overlay all three, um, let's assume that the pitcher is overlaying your zone with his, um, he's going to, if, if your hot zone is also his strength, he's probably still going to throw that because it's his strength. But, um, and I think this is another argument for what we're, what we're looking to do, which is, you know, create a motor abundance, being able to hit multiple pitches and multiple speeds and multiple counts, you know, and do that with damage is, um, you know, when, when you, when you overlay that, you're going to, you're going to find out like, okay, how's this guy going to pitch me? Um, you're not just going to the play and saying, okay, well, I know that I, I hit pitches down and in very well. So I'm only swinging at pitches down and in. like, yeah, like maybe that's your highest Woba and maybe you do utilize that approach. Maybe you don't, but like, I think if you, if you increase your bandwidth of motor action, then I think you're going to be able to adapt to any pitch tendency or, or pitch zone that they might have. So I'm trying to be concise with that, but hopefully that was pretty clear. I think the extra element to that and kind of playing off of what Nick said and also what Brian said, uh, I both thought, I thought they were both really, really good points. Kind of how, uh, uh, how pitchers will choose to attack you. Um, and how it doesn't really matter what you want to get. If you're not getting that pitch, then you're going to have a lot of trouble. Um, so the first point that I would say to that is, especially once you get, uh, to higher levels, once you get to pro ball, um, there, there is, there's so many numbers and this is becoming the case in college baseball too. And especially the more times that you play a team, um, the more that your weaknesses are exposed and the more that those pitchers are going to, are going to go after those weaknesses because they see that they can do it. Um, there's more, there's more data on that, the higher levels you get up to, and it's a little more intuitive at the lower levels, but it still exists. So to me, that's even more reason to make sure that you are, uh, not, not exclusively attending to your strengths. Um, but realizing that pitchers more often than not, um, are going to be trying to take advantage of your weaknesses. Um, there still will be pitchers of course that will, that will pitch to their strengths, but if it's a glaring weakness that is obvious or that there's numbers to back that up, pitchers are going to try to go after that, uh, feeling more confident that you're going to struggle with something. The second point that I would make to that, um, I, I think the idea of, of you getting us a, a certain percentage of pitches in, in certain zones and certain pitch types based on data and based on numbers, um, that's, that's sort of with the assumption that you're facing the same pitcher for 100% of your at-bats. And quite clearly, that is not going to be the case. So just the very fact that um, pitchers will try to attack you differently with different arsenals and uh, different different ways that they try to mix their pitches and different ways that they are trying to get you out. So that's even more of a reason because I might have to adjust my approach and I might have to have, as Nick put it, more of a movement abundance um, so that I can uh, be able to solve those problems when I'm facing different pitcher types, knowing that I'm going to face 
a wide spectrum of pitchers across the board. So the more motor abundance that I have to be able to solve those problems, knowing that I am likely going to get pitches all over the place um, and being prepared to be able to do that. Um, so those are kind of the two things that came to my mind when kind of thinking about how we can use data and how pitchers attack. Um, and then the last thing I would say is kind of putting those two things together um, as as pitchers talk to one another, as it, as a, a reputation spreads about you as a hitter, pitchers are going to talk or a pitching coach who's calling pitches in, in college baseball or the data says so, those pitchers will start to kind of come together to realize those weaknesses. And pretty soon you're going to start to see those percentages that you were talking about, Robert. For you specifically, those percentages will start being skewed in the direction that is going to limit you the most. So in those cases, once that happens – what are you able to do if you aren't working on your weaknesses consistently and how are you going to be able to combat that other than just say, well, I'm waiting for him to make a mistake and hoping that that pitcher does something that he's not trying to do. Um, so those were kind of my thoughts as far as how we should attack using that data and how that can kind of evolve over time. And the thing that like, I know Caleb, you and I talked about on, or I guess Robert and I talked with you, Caleb on, uh, the last time you were on our podcast was the fact that like, it's kind of difficult. Like, what do we do? Cause it's difficult to, to actually change these sometimes. So like, how do we approach that? Or, um, in that process of like, how much time do we spend on that when like, it can be really difficult to actually, um, figure that out. Like that's where I think a lot of coaches um, struggle with that. But I think going back to the, the, when you were on, I think the, the default approach of most coaches is the fact that it's hard to change, uh, make changes and, and a person's weaknesses are there for a reason and it's really hard to change them. And so they default to, in my mind, like plan C or plan Z of like, let's just then, create a scenario where we double down on their strengths and we basically tip our cap to the pitcher if he throws in our in our cold zones and we're okay with walking back to the dugout because we feel like by accepting the fact that we can tip our cap like we feel like we have more control you know over over the outcome because like being in that situation you oftentimes feel very powerless but i think the question becomes like well, what is plan A? You know, like how do we how do we actually execute on plan A, which would be what you're talking about, Caleb, of like, okay, we'd see these weaknesses or these weaknesses rather have been exposed throughout the season that this is what you're struggling on. How do we give you, how do we take you from, I don't know, below the Mendoza line to above it? Like maybe you'll never hit like you do in your hot zones or even like, remotely good in that zone, but how do we make it at least not just a, a complete giveaway? So you can call me stubborn. My, my wife would say that I am. Um, but, uh, I, I just, I, I have a strong belief that one of the reasons, and I, I am, I am very, I mean, we're all very well aware of coaches tendencies to sort of fall in line with this, uh, desire to mitigate risk and to try to accept losses um, 
uh, sort of this risk assessment game of coaching that I feel like has been around for a long time. That's basically the tip your cap sort of mentality. Um, and I, I just uh, call me crazy, but I, I just, I, I don't personally believe in it. And I think one of the reasons, um, one of the reasons that we think that is because we haven't really put a ton of time and effort into actually trying to do that. So it's almost like it's been this accepted, uh, oh, well, this is just how it's been done. And it's, it's very similar to a lot of the things in our game that have, that have started to change over the last, you know, couple of decades. Um, but I think it's more of something that we have not put ample time into and when wanted to experiment to for whatever reason you want to pick um, for fear of failure, for uh, fear of screwing something up and maybe losing something that you felt like you had. Um, but it's something that I'm passionate about challenging and seeing if it's something that uh, that is able to be changed. I, I just... I don't know that we can definitively say that we can't impact that and influence that positively. I just think that very few, if any people have actually thrown themselves into trying to do that consistently, um, which is why it makes me all that much more curious in trying to attack through that sort of, of, uh, strategy. But I, I would, I would be very interested to hear anyone else's perspectives on that. Um, whether it be Nick or Brian or, any, any, any of you guys, as far as how you kind of think about that? Um, I think one of the things like uh, addressing that idea specifically of like, okay, there's certain places where you're getting beat and, and my mind goes to, and I want to know where, where your guys' perspective is because you guys have worked in the team setting, uh, but navigating or helping your, your hitters navigate where they're allowed to fail. Um, cause I think a lot of those times you, you focus on like, all right, like I'm not getting hits. This is how I have to try to get a hit. Like I'm getting pitched like down and in, or I'm getting pitched up and in. And I can't get there. Like, and I think you have to be able to like find a way to get them to understand that there's certain ways you're okay with them failing. Like for, uh, for, for example, let's say a righty facing a righty hitter. He's got arm side run with his fastball and then he's got a hard breaking slider. Like with that guy, I mean, I would allow a kid to be like, Hey, like it's okay to roll over and it's okay to swing and miss on a slider. Like, but you have to be willing to fail in a certain way. Like, you know, and the reason why I say it's okay to roll over, it's like, well, maybe you perceive that as the wrong, like, you know, way to hit a ball. But in my opinion, like maybe you're, if you view it as a timing thing, like maybe you're a little bit earlier. Um, okay to swing and miss on sliders. I think that's important because it's, it's now you, you step away from that perspective, especially with, you know, a few hitters I've talked to of like, well, I only hit fastballs and I can't hit sliders. It's like, to your point, Caleb, it's like, well, maybe you haven't attributed enough time to try and figure out if there is a way you can hit sliders. Um, so I kind of want to turn the question back on uh, you and Nick in the team setting of, of how you guys navigate that in game and then in practices, you know, addressing specific hitters, you know, points of struggle. And too, though, I wanted to jump in um, and say, like, I think coaches have tried, you know, so to speak of like changing, like, that's why I think 
they've moved away from that. And the more analytic side has like driven them to move away from it. Like it's given them more reason. It's, it's the, it's the notion of like, if you're playing blackjack, like, do you stay or do you hit, you know, like there's a certain percentage where it's like, you know what, let's just, our percents go up when you start taking more pitches and staying out of your, your, uh, your cold zone. And then, and then you tend to do more, we tend to get better outcomes when, even when we take the L's on that. And I think that's where I think at some level I I'm with you, Caleb, in that, like, I still think we can do better than that from a player, just simply on a player development from a player development standpoint, we can do better than that. Um, And I think though it's been in part because the, the uh, skill acquisition model or the motor learning model that we're using to approach um, approach solving this deficit was, well, I'm just going to throw you a ton of balls that are in your, your uh, in your weakness and then hope you figure it out. And it's, it's a weird subtle difference, at least from an eco D perspective, like, I want you to then not just like there's a level of you need to figure this out, but I'm going to help guide you in terms of trying to help you figure it out. It's not, but it's not me telling you exactly how to figure it out. It's me being like, you need to explore, try different things. Here are different principles that I understand in terms of calibration or whatever. And we'll try to help your system figure out how to coordinate and find find a movement solution there. But to some degree, it's like, yes, we're going to throw you these types of pitches that are your weakness. We might interleave them, like meaning we're not going to throw you just all right there. We may break it up. And then also we want you to try something that you think is just like the most ridiculous thing you've ever done before. Like you feel ridiculous doing it, but like literally I want you to explore and try something different. Um, and creating a space for them to be where they feel safe to fail. Um, and so like, that's, that to me is like the difference and the subtle difference of approach, um, of what, like, I think gets lost in what Caleb, you, you say, but I know you don't necessarily do. Like, I know you encourage them to explore, but sometimes like, at least in some other conversations, I, it sounds like you're saying, oh, all I do is I just throw them a ton of pitches in their weak spot and then tell them to figure it out. But I know it's more complex than that is more what I'm trying to say. Yeah, there's I mean, there's I mean, there's clearly as a coach, we should always have a facilitator role um, and it should always be something that we are guiding them. Um, I, I just I lean more in the direction of rather than telling, I mean, it's, I mean, it's like you said just a minute ago, rather than telling them exactly how to accomplish it the way that I think that they should accomplish it, um, giving them the right sort of context and mixing things in and, uh, altering the environment in such a way that, you know, they're, they are, they are forced to figure it out in, in the way that's going to transfer the best to an actual game game setting, having conversations with them about what their intentions are, about what their approach is, about what's going on in their heads, because that's, you know, going back to the beginning of the conversation with systems theory, that, that is such a big part of this is what's going on in their head. What's how they're managing their emotions, their, their, their feelings, their thoughts on the whole thing. And, and, 
and, and, and how they're going to walk out of the cage that day or how they're going to walk off the field that day. And then how they're actually going to bring that into the game the next time, uh, they actually go up against a pitcher out on the field. Um, so yeah, it's trying to implement all those things together and bring that sort of proper context. Yeah. Hey, Brian, back to your, uh, I'm just going to go quickly back to Brian. He, I think he posed a really interesting question and, and I'm really interested in, in maybe pursuing this a little bit further. Me and Chad was actually talking about this, um, today and we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, um, about navigating that, you know, that water of, um, you know, how do you, how do you facilitate or, um, promote a setting that is, um, that is, uh, I guess, not okay with failure, but understands that it's part of skill acquisition. And so, like, I go right back to, um, you know, just from a from a, a child or, or an adolescent standpoint. They're obviously they're probably more adept to making uh, or and adapting to a variety of environments. Like, if when you're let's say that you have a child and, and you want them to learn to ride a bike. If you never put their training wheels on their bike and you just give them one of those other bikes that they kind of pedal with their feet. And then you go straight from that bike to the bike with pedals. Like he's, even if he does fall, he's just going to realize that that's part of it. Right. But if you, if you use a, the training wheels for so long, you, you grow this dependence on that constraint. And you know, when he fell, it's not fun. You just, you kind of stop. And, you know, and Chad using, using his kids as an example, just incredible. Um, he is talking about um, like not using baseballs for his children and only using tennis balls or wiffle balls, something with less force that would uh, provide less vibration if they miss hit the ball. Um, because there, there's less like consequences at that age if you make – um, or at any age, if you're, if you're using tennis balls and wiffle balls. And I think that really encourages like the ability to swing hard and aggressively and, and, uh, hit the ball far, but trying to stay on pace here, um, Brian and, and track, like what I'm trying to get to is like hit his daughter has never used a tee in her life. And he was telling me the story of her trying to use the tee last year and she couldn't do it. She legitimately couldn't hit the ball off the tee. All she can do is hit the ball um, that's moving, like a ball that's thrown, projected by someone. And it's like, and the parents are like, like, what's going on? You're like, but like, that's like, can we do that in like a college setting? Can we like redirect the, this paradigm or reposition our players on, on, on that side of the spectrum to, to say like, this is the, this is okay. Like it's okay to train without your training wheels. It's, it's, it's okay to never hit a ball off of a tee. Like that's when that's all they know. I think it's a lot easier to just kind of like, oh, that failure, that's part of it. So what, you know, like, but at that age, like, how do you, how do you redirect a, a, you know, a 35, college athletes to realizing that failure is, is just part of it. Um, and I don't know that I have an answer, but it's like after, like after you get through four years or whatever the cycle is, like you can start to kind of shift to that other side of the spectrum. If you know what I'm saying, like you can kind of like, you can start over, um, with a new group. If you go into a new program as a hitting coach or a head coach, um, if that, hopefully that made sense. 
Yeah, no, I think where that brings me to, you know, in terms of an environment that allows you to to not necessarily say a failure is okay, like you said, but encourage it as all part of the process. Um, something I read recently in in uh, Inner Game of Tennis is is seeing each swing as it is, without emotional judgment attached to it, and you know, staying away from from judging each swing as good or bad. Because it, it's to me, it's not even that. Hey, like stay neutral and remove emotion. To me, what what angers me about good or bad is like that's not even specific enough. Like that's not specific enough for me to know what bad is. Did you hook it? Did you did you fly out? Did you slice it? Like did you completely swing and miss? Like and I and I think that's the that's that would frustrate anybody in any conversation of like oh it was good it was bad. It's like well I don't have any information and. And the more and more, I mean, I, I've been able to, to explore it with, with individual hitters or groups um, in, in sessions, you know, where I'm like, each swing is just information. But as the second, like, your results start getting, you know, like, and I think here's, here's the other thing that I've started to see, partly because of that, what I was reading, but it was like, like positive thoughts are, can be just as detrimental. Because Garrett and Caleb, you guys kind of touched upon this. It's like, Oh, that was a good result. Now I have to repeat it. It's like, no, 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 no. That was one pitch. That was one tempo. That was one environment. That was its own situation. And it's just as bad as saying that that swing is bad. It's like, now you tense up, like you're focusing too hard. You're trying too hard and you're trying to create or fix something rather than like, oh, I was just a little bit under it. I was mm-hmm. just a little bit inside of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I love thinking about it that way. I, 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 I actually kind of, we must be having some kind of mind, mind meld or something, Brian. Um, I actually jotted this down in, uh, a, a, a Twitter draft just, just, uh, the other day. And at, at some point I'll probably put it out there. Um, uh, and I, it's something along the lines of a good swing only exists in that it solves that specific problem in that specific moment in time for the exact result that you wanted. So it's like, it's only good in in the fact that it, that you achieve the result in that one specific point in time that kind of the point that you were making that you're never going to get back like that, like that point in time is over. So you can't go back and do anything about it. And it has no bearing on whether you're going to be successful on your next opportunity. So when you think about it that way, it can really help take the focus off of the technique and put it on the individual task in that point in time. And, you know, we talk so much, like it's, it's really overused, like staying in the moment and this pitch right now and, and focus on this pitch one pitch at a time, all those overused baseball guy cliches that are, that are, uh, just, uh, trite at this point, but it really is true when it comes to movement. Um, and it's something that we, uh, uh, we, we need to focus more on as far as what we're doing in that specific moment and, and instead of what the movement looks like or feels like. Yeah. And I think to piggyback off of that, like even in the game, it's like, how could you be embarrassed by swinging and missing at a, a slider? Like, you know, that, that pitch may have been in the dirt and you, it looked really ugly. It might've been really embarrassing, but like, now you're almost like 90% certain that you're getting that pitch again, whether it was that at bat or later in the game. It's like that eliminates the possibilities of what they're going to throw to you now. Like, 
but it's all information of of you know oh they they keep getting me on this pitch it's like that isn't that a good thing like you know you're gonna get it now mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i i personally i i think of i really love what you're saying there brian how each swing is just information and you know i i think about information um you know as feedback from a you know technological standpoint um providing feedback objectively but like i I just really like um, thinking about it that way that each swing is just information um, for the for the next pitch and and I think that's a great way of framing that I think it's very clear too yeah I think I was watching uh, Francisco Lindor take batting practice I think it was in the ALCS like a few years ago and and then another one of Christian Yelich taking batting practice and Lindor literally slices like four or five balls in a row, like to the opposite side of the batting cage, like mm-hmm. straight ahead in front of him. And it's like he was taking a perfect round. Like that was what his demeanor kind of, you know, said. And same with Yelich, like he snap hooks like six balls in a row to the second baseman. And then like, you know, he seems unfazed by it. It's it's because I think they've achieved some sort of like separation, like from the emotion and this all kind of got me thinking at ABCA because it was something that Chris Colabello was saying on uh, in one of his presentations. It's like every single swing is going to have some emotion tied to it. And and it's not that you ignore it or that you try to eliminate it, but just understanding like it's all part of, you know, a hitting process or a development process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I go to like in terms of providing feedback, um, to hitters, um, and even not from my mouth, um, not even me um, necessarily directing their attention to um, information, but just me, just uh, you know, early on in the stage of development of a hitter is just encouraging them to use batted ball characteristics, and then in understanding the relationship between um, bat ball collisions to help them know how do I, um, self-correct, like understanding, um, what the relationship between bad balls are and bad ball collisions and being able to use that information to, um, guide their action in the next pitch. Um, for instance, just, just for one example, like we had a, we had a catcher, he, um, just really could not square a ball um, on the outer third of the plate, anything middle end, like he's hitting a ball at least to the warning track and he's going to pull it, he's going to hammer it. And, uh, so, you know, of course the coaches want them, um, which for good reason, I mean, you, you should be able to hit all parts of the zone. I'm not discouraging that by any means. I think you should. Um, but you know, it like, you know, how is that happening? I think, you know, once you start to realize that it was simply, I think just he was just miss hitting the baseball. Um, then I think he realized that all he had to do was simply just square it. So like he he was really just not attuned, or he did not understand the association between um, his swing and and that batted ball event. But once he started to realize like those relationships, he was able to like make those swing to swing adjustments. Um, so I think like. I think that again, that's that's really good information for a hitter to use and to regulate their action. One thing that I wanted to kind of jump back on that I think Brian and 
Caleb kind of touched on a little bit is the emotion component. And one of my favorite, I know we already talked about Bruce Lee, but to talk about him some more and in Enter the Dragon, he has this moment with a student and he talks to him about having emotional content. Like as I learn more about this, the, the connection between the, the mind and the body and it being intertwined, emotional content is just energy in motion or like, emo, uh, like having emotion, like being able to express it. And also though, to a, to a certain extent, be able to channel it uh, in terms of what you're trying to do. Cause I think to be emotionless doesn't necessarily improve performance. Um, and there are times where like it actually hurts performance. And so having the correct emotional content. And as Bruce Lee talks about it there, that doesn't mean anger. I think people confuse what that, what that necessarily means. But in, in that scene, he talks about you, like he talks about like, um, moving with him. So like you want to connect to that information, the emotional content needs to be connected to the environment and to what you're trying to do in the environment. And I think the highest, um, expression of skill is being able to express oneself. Like, so if you're able to execute on what it is that you're trying to do, you were able to fully express yourself in that moment, in that event with what you were doing. And so the, the thing that I think I've talked about a few times on the podcast is it was very interesting to me, like this notion and to go back to the, the mechanical, piece and the technique piece is like, if we spend all this time on technique in our training and we had this situation where our team was struggling because we, we lacked emotion, so to speak, like that's, that's what we diagnosed the team is like, you guys are just lacking emotion. You didn't show up to play. Um, your heart wasn't in it, whatever that goes to show that no amount of technique, how good you are technique wise can overcome the lack of, uh, the mental state or the intention or the emotion that you bring to the game. And that is why, you know, some players play better, even though then, then some players with bad movements, they look like bad movements play better than those with pretty movements or movements that we would deem, um, as being correct, um, could simply have to do with the emotional content that is going on. Like there's a difference between those two people. I think I think what you're what you're speaking to, uh, and, and you know this is this is kind of I mean just in my mind the connection I make in my mind, uh, it, it's it's kind of going on down a different road, which is probably an altogether different conversation. But it speaks more to me about culture, and it speaks more to me about relationships that you have with players and the trust that you're building with players and. Uh, the sort of environment from a non-athletic standpoint that you are creating in which it's safe enough for those players to want to uh, be okay with failing, like we've talked about plenty. And uh, they, they embrace challenges when those challenges come about and they find a way to, quote, get up to play when, you know, when they're not feeling like it or they just or or when they do 
when they notice that they are not playing up to snuff that day or their motivation is lacking, they have the ability to make that adjustment very, very quickly. Um, and they can kind of do it on their own as players. So I think from a culture standpoint, those should all be things that we should be striving to instill from, I mean, at least in a team setting. I mean, this is more, this is more college baseball and some high school baseball, um, uh, conversations that I'm kind of talking about now. You don't really see this as much in pro ball. Um, but to me, that's a little bit um, separate from the mechanics, ecological dynamics, um, not to say that they aren't connected, that they affect one another, um, because I absolutely believe that they do from a systems theory standpoint. Um, uh, and I do like the connection that you made there, Garrett, as far as like their technique can be great and they can be doing everything right. But if the motivation isn't there, if, if the culture isn't right, then they're going to struggle. Um, but I, I feel like when you're trying to improve uh, the things that you're talking about on an emotional level, I think that's more setting culture and establishing trust and building relationships from from the top down to build that type of environment that is going to coincide with the type of environment that you're trying to create athletically that, that leads to uh, the best movers that are going to be able to produce the best results on the field. Well, I think too, like, and you touched on it, but the point that I would make is that I'm not trying to say that everything is connected, therefore it's meaningless. Like I, I just like, it's true that everything is connected, but I think from an ecological perspective, it helps us understand how it's connected mm -hmm. and why it's connected and why it's so important is that these things are intertwined and they affect the motor output. Like they have a profound effect on the motor output of the athlete. So if you, if you neglect this one piece and think that everything hinges on technique, yeah. if it can be easily undone by simply manipulating the, the player's emotion or emotional state, it, it shows you how weak or how vulnerable that strategy is. And to me, encapsulates why I, I feel like ecological dynamics has a lot to, to bring to athletics. And from the standpoint of having this be an underpinning philosophy of like how we go about looking at things, analyzing things and approaching things. Cause it, to me, it helps me understand like, okay, why I'm not going to be, I'm going to probably spend more of my time thinking about things from the emotional standpoint of the athlete and trying to not just emotionally, but like their ability to connect everything. There's this idea of integrity, um, like this concept of integrity of, of like being whole and being holistic and like, okay, all of this stuff needs to work together in one direction. And when we compartmentalize it, um, both from how we think about it to how we practice it, even though at times we may need to, if you don't have this overall, um, how this holistically works together and have, keep that in your mind as you're going about doing these things based upon the c practice constraints that you have to work within, um, can sometimes leave us missing the boat, um, and leaving a lot on the table when it comes to player development. I think the type of culture that you are, uh, just to kind of play off of that and something that I said a minute ago as well, and then I'll let someone else talk. So I'm not talking so much. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the point about them working together, I think if, 
if if you are the type of coach, the type of developer, the type of leader uh, in a clubhouse or on a team that you that is trying to develop the type of environment that we talked about earlier, uh, that you're trying to develop the right type of training environment, where to Brian and Nick's point that you're uh, you're almost to the point of encouraging ex- exploration to the point of failure and encouraging embracing challenges to the point where it's okay to fail. It's all part of the process. If you are doing that properly and you are encouraging athletes to develop that part of their mentality and you are successful in doing that in a training environment and in a practice environment, whether it's inner squads or work on the field or, or whatever, come game time, if that's already instilled in that, in my experience and what I believe is it's a much easier transition because you've developed that trust, you developed that relationship, you've established that culture in your training so that then come game time, that's more of a seamless transition because that culture has already been established there. So you don't have to rely on that technique so much. And you've built the type of culture that encourages players to not only embrace challenges in practice, but they embrace challenges when they're facing a pitcher throwing 97 with a filthy slider. Um, And it doesn't matter who's on the mound, they're going to find a way to beat him. So uh, yeah, to your point, that's an excellent point that it all goes hand in hand. And I think it starts with how you, the type of mentality that you're trying to instill and the type of culture that you build as a result of that trust and developing that identity in your team uh, in how they prepare first to get ready to play and then how they're going to approach teams once they actually do compete against them. I think those things all go hand in hand. Yeah, and I find I find it important too. Um, that you can kind of embrace those challenges in the sense that, you know, a lot of coaches talk about, you know, competition and being able to set a kind of competitive environment uh, in the practice setting, um, kind of like a goal system as well. And I think that's, that's huge in kind of getting this environment being able to embrace challenges because, you know, in the game of baseball, one pitch, one, you know, one at bat, it, you could break it down any way you want, but things aren't typically aren't going to go your way, and so you have to be able to understand that things aren't going to typically go your way. So how can you best optimize or attune to that information by saying, "Okay, I know that things typically aren't going my way, so here's what I can do to best make of that situation." I think too, on top of that, um, you know, of what you were talking to about attunement, the other component two is calibration so like okay they may be they may be sensitive to that information but their system might not be calibrated to the the actual information in in terms of like where is it uh in relation to myself so i think too when we're talking about this we also want to understand that the the sensitivity to the information is is one thing and then the ability to or the the system's um ability or the system's current state of calibration to that information may, may also be like, so when we're talking about them, like making a mistake, like, is it because they're attuned to the wrong information or is it because their system was miscalibrated and they need to learn how to make an adjustment to get recalibrated, um, to that information? Like they, so for example, like a hitter goes like, I saw that, but like, I just swung through it, even though I saw and recognized it, um, early but I just, I, I messed up there. So the question becomes like, is a guy who swings through two pitches 
like, does he know how to recalibrate his system so that when that third pitch, because now the pitcher's thinking, I can blow this by him or I can get him to swing and miss on this pitch, that the batter has actually made an adjustment, um, whether that's um, attuning to more specifying information or if it's just simply him calibrate, needing to recalibrate or calibrate to, to that type of pitch. I think what, where my mind goes to when, when you mentioned calibration, at least in the training setting, and then, um, you know, with conversations I've had with, with other hitters and, and listening to conversations of what different, you know, former MLB guys would say, or even current players would say in their interviews of like the perception of like what effort level is going to be optimal for them in the game. Like, let's say specifically for that, that scenario, like, Oh, I'm seeing it well, but I'm just like swinging right through it. Like if you go to from a technical standpoint, like someone will, you know, will be like, Oh, you, you just, you know, you pulled your head off and you weren't seeing it or you weren't tracking it deep. But for me, like I, I, I always go back to this of like, as a player, like how many of those doubles and home runs, like, like felt effortless. They felt quick. Like they felt fluid. Um, and, and I think that's something, you know, we talk about how, you know, emotion plays into it. I think like emotion is tied closely to attention. Like you're going to have different emotions based, based off of where your attention's placed. And for some guys, like, you know, without getting too deep into differences, physical differences between athletes, like maybe certain guys get away with higher effort. Um, maybe guys get away with like, you know, lower effort. Um, obviously that's individual, but, but in terms of finding, you know, the right amount of, you know, attention to be placed on something, I think that's also individual, right? Like different guys are going to succeed with, you know, different amounts of effort, different amounts of, of attention placed on certain things. Um, and certain guys are going to be capable of being more emotional, um, or being less emotional. So I think, you know, to that point of, of calibration, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious on, on where your mind goes specifically, um, to a situation like that where, where someone's, you're seeing it, but like swinging through it or, you know, they seem to be focused on the right things, but they're still not finding the results. So how I look at calibration is like, okay, so if you have a rifle and you have a scope on it and you have your, your rifle is dialed in, but let's say, for example, the wind changes or you move, um, the target changes, you may have to recalibrate your scope to be able to get the bullet on target. And so, for example, what that would look like in the situation that you described, Brian, is that, okay, like if we look at it, instead of being like, oh, you pulled your head or you pulled off the ball, like maybe that's true depending upon, like if we were to look at video or whatever, like depending upon the feedback of of it, like meaning like you capped it off the end, like there's there might be a little bit of, we can focus a little bit more on the movement itself. But if you're, if you're like, like you're talking about, I see it, but I just swung right through it. The question becomes, well, were you over or under it? Because maybe you just simply have to be like, I need to swing over this ball. Like take, for example, the slider machine that I know you've talked about a bit of like the intention being that I'm going to try to not hit this ball or miss this ball. And, um, or, you know, you could say it differently of like, I'm going to try to swing under this ball. Um, you know, Caleb, you had an example of that on a 
previous podcast as well in terms of like what the intention of the athlete, just shifting it. And I think that's a taboo thing to do in terms of being like, Hey, instead of making a mechanical adjustment, we're going to make a, a focus adjustment an attention adjustment in terms of what they're focusing on uh, when it comes to the information. Like they just need to recalibrate their system to where where other objects or other things in space are in relation to them, specifically in this, this instance, the ball. And so I think to me, that's, that's how I think about calibration. Um, Like in terms of like, you're having to calibrate a piece of equipment. You're having to, I really like the idea of recalibrating your scope on a rifle um, due to, you know, wind changes, distance changes. Um, You, you, you may have to, do some recalibration. So, um, that's, that's at least, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and I like that you brought up, you know, the machine and, and how to attack the machine because there's, there's two instances that, that, that I come to mind right away is, you know, and maybe it's like a little bit of a party trick, but in terms of effort, I think it's always interesting to see like, guys simply swing in too hard where they can't make contact with a slider. Um, so stepping in and, and holding a full length bat just in my top hand and taking this easy swing to lace a line drive right back. Um, I make that comparison to, you know, when it, when a hitter first steps in a box to see if, you know, the pitching machine's pitching accurately or, or the, the throwers throwing accurately and they'll take this half hearted swing. They barely move their feet and they'll lace a ball. And as soon as they start trying to hit, it's like now they're missing under, they're missing inside or they're hooking. And and I think there's something to that. And, and this phrase that I've been saying about 50 times a day, like relaxed concentration. Like I think a lot of guys might might perceive easy effort to mean like a loose and, and, and slower swing rather than like the state of mind of being relaxed so that you can track a ball. Um, and then swinging and missing, I think, it's a huge part because it, it kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier. You're, you're opening the mind to be free to fail, but fail in a specific way. So now it's like miss inside, miss inside. Like I'd rather you, you know, try and miss this way than, you know, try to be so perfect in, in how you're approaching that pitch. And, and Garrett, you were there that one day where we were doing machine work and then the thought of like swinging over the top of the ball, like Bregman said in an interview, that's what he tries to do with, you know, high spin rate guys it's like just swing above it without without changing you know technique or mechanics you just you know change your aim quickly on that note there that reminds me of, of something that's been on my mind here recently um you know utilizing the you know just from a eco d um position like you're talking about bragman there his his uh kind of redirecting his um, intention to swinging above the ball versus pitchers like maybe Garrett Cole with high spin rate and <laughs> high velocity um, to to really help him you know accomplish what he wants to um, accomplish and I think in in terms of like exploring the that landscape or that that problem I think one like um, one solution that I don't see really enough enough of is hitters just altering their stance height. You know, like why is it that years ago, 
couple of decades ago, guys like Pete Rose and Ricky Henderson had a great degree of forward bend or hip hinge. And, and, um, I think it, it probably was according to their, you know, the task and, um, you know, the environment and they were just connected to that information. Um, I think that's potentially one reason why you've seen them bend a little bit more. And then, um, but getting back to Garrett Cole and, and, um, Bragman here, like a hitter who stands more upright, who is kind of searching or exploring that problem. If they just would stand more upright and kind of maybe they preset the bat a bit to their spine, like that's going to help them like create that plane for the pitch. Like, and I think that just kind of alludes to, um, you know, what we've been talking about is just kind of exploring or searching. And like, I, t- I tell guys all the time, like there's, there's not many rules. Like here's the, here's the problem. Sure. You're utilizing constraints to kind of direct their attention. Um, and I kind of like what Garrett is saying there, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're directing a hitter or whoever's attention to, um, to a particular characteristic of the problem that could help them solve the problem without explicitly telling them. And then, um, it's, it's, you know, through that process, they're going to have to calibrate and, um, all that stuff. But yeah, I think, I think that's, uh, I think that's a really good way of, of thinking about it and looking about it. And that's, that's what's come to my mind is in terms of like, you know, adjusting to maybe a picture like that and, and kind of like, um, redirecting your attention, um, attention and, and kind of calibrating according to that problem. The one thing too, that I I wanted to kind of, or add to what you were saying is that the, the exploration process and like the adaptability process is them becoming sensitive to the information to understand what adjustments they need to make. Like, the, the information in the environment is going to help them as they become more sensitive to it. And like, for example, they, they even within an at-bat, their ability to understand what type of an adjustment to make, whether that is, like, I would assume good hitters, like, whether it's conscious or not, are going to understand like, oh, okay, I need to, this guy is high spin, I need to, um, whether he recognized it's high spin or not, like it's just like I was under that. I need to just focus a little bit more. Either that's I need to focus more, like they shift their intention or they shift their intention in terms of like where they're actually trying to hit the ball um, or what part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, to to being able to switch all the way to, okay, I'm getting off speed. I need to think, um, miss the ball or whatever it was that um, Brian, we were talking about, like, it's not a one size fit all for just even the individual. Like they need to have like part of the reason why we want to use exploration is we want to enable the athlete to be able to differentiate between the, the information that they are receiving about the game and themselves and to be able to then make good adjustments. Like you can only make um, good adjustments if you have good information. And so we want to create an environment so that they get better at gathering information and can then use that to make adjustments um, throughout. And so throughout, whether it's an at-bat or even a, a game um, to multiple games. So, I mean, when we talk about being process-driven, I think 
these are the types of things that we actually mean with that. Like to go back to what you were saying before, Caleb, of like words losing their meaning or becoming cliche. Like I think process driven is another one. And what I think we need to do is continually explain what those words mean to athletes and then also allow athletes to explain what it means to them so that there's some level of newness or freshness that gets reinvigorated into these words that do actually have a lot of meaning and because they work, but they become stale because we've, we've, we've just used the word and we didn't have any meaning behind it. Um, or it was the meaning behind it was vague. And so we have to continually build this out. So people actually understand like, what is it explicitly that I'm trying to do with this? Like, what does it mean? And then give them an environment where they're able to actually go and play with that and expand upon that and make it their own. Just to go back to a point that, uh, that you made just a minute ago and that Brian and Nick both kind of touched on the point of calibration and how we go about making adjustments and how hitters should be able to make adjustments in game. And and, I mean, in, in an ideal world, we're all trying to coach hitters to get to the point where they can make those adjustments from pitch to pitch. And to your point, Garrett, knowing what it takes uh, to be able to make that adjustment and being able to assess what it was that led to your failure so that you can then be able to turn around and then make the necessary adjustment. And I think that level of calibration uh, and that level of ability to make adjustments, the word that comes to my mind when I think of that is just building awareness. And I think the more awareness that we have, that we can build in our athletes, in our hitters, in a training environment, and the more awareness that we can build into uh, their their ability to adjust and self-assess and diagnose, and then be able to uh, re- redistribute their efforts in a game setting, um, speaks directly to their ability to be aware of what the actual problem was. So, from an athletic standpoint. Um, and, and developing that athleticism, I think that's how we do develop that uh, that uh, uh, awareness and that ability to do that. And from in terms of awareness, I, I kind of think about that in a, a few different basic ways. So being able to identify whether it's kinesthetic awareness, temporal awareness, spatial awareness, um, even emotional uh, awareness, um, visuomotor uh, awareness. Um, and kind of what we are, uh, assessing is the issue and how we're then taking our level of awareness and then attributing it to what it is that we need to fix so that, so that we can then be more successful. And I think it was a good point, Garrett, about the environment that we create helps to develop that level of awareness. And I think in those basic areas, those, those few basic areas that I mentioned, we should try to develop our, uh, and Nick will like this term, we should try to develop our game activities Mm. around trying to develop awareness in those specific areas and maybe have that be our objective. Okay. This is a, this is an emotional awareness. This is a kinesthetic awareness activity where we're trying to be aware of what's actually going on. And obviously that has to be facilitated with conversation and, 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 you know, it comes back to building that trust and the coach player, relationship that we need through that. But, um, I think that's a very key component that is not discussed very much. And it's something that the better that we can make players at doing that and the more that we can take ourselves out of the equation and allow them to be able to use their own instincts and that awareness that they've built in game, the better off that they're going to be. 
well, I was going to say where, where my mind goes there with, with awareness goes to, you know, I think it is a coach's job to constantly be assessing and reassessing both awareness and perception. Like, what are they thinking? And then how aware are they of certain things, especially like you said, like body, temporal, and then spatial awareness, even emotional awareness. And something I've been playing with, um, at least in the private setting, is this idea of a limited choice structure. Like, you can develop awareness by giving them limited choices and then seeing what their responses are. Like, that's going to tell me so much about an athlete. Like, you know, some of the things I'd play with is like, giving them a set of set of drills or a set of movements and then usually like two or three and then seeing what they decide and and what they kind of gravitated towards and and for me that was like the best form of feedback i could get from them without having to ask them questions because sometimes i'll ask them questions and they're like trying to spit out a response that they think i want rather than like the choices they make are going to tell me a lot more and and, you know, I went from like, you know, choices and setup, like you can either set up this way, this way, or this way, you can either use, you know, one of these three drills or, and, and they would all kind of address, like, in my head, at least it would address like where I wanted them to direct their attention. Like, and once I know, or I felt like I had a good idea of like what they were focusing on and, and like how they perceived a certain situation, like I almost felt like it, it, it led me to the next place to go with them like what would be the next best task for them to continue exploring um but but i i think like right now my biggest problem with with hard instruction and and dictation of what a kid should do is like they don't realize like how many choices they have Mm -hmm. like they don't realize that backing off the plate is an option that opening up their stance is an option that lowering or, or raising their hands is an option it's like no, like, yeah, I can't do, I can't, I'm not going to call time and do that for you in the box. Like they have to be aware from the training setting already that like they're free to make these choices. Um, I saw a post today, uh, about infielders, like, and for me, this is, this is like very close to my heart because like infield coaches telling me exactly like how to field a ball that like, Hey, like you got to break, you got to break down, sit your feet and make a throw. I'm like, Dude, every time I do that, I'm going to sail the first baseman. But every time I throw on the run, like I'm hitting him in the chest. So what's more important, like getting everybody to move the same way or perform a task the same way or, yeah. or actually complete the task? I think it's in part too, like we want there to be a pill and for there to be like everybody to get the same outcome. Like that's why I think we default to to like everybody needs to do it this way or like if it doesn't if you sail it it's because of this because then the solution is this and it's not so linear (laughs) no no not at all um i guess one question that i wanted to i've been meaning to ask i keep forgetting but caleb you brought it up a while back nick uh what's your take on drills Um, (laughs) or just the word yeah (laughs) i forgot to ask you on your uh on your actual podcast individual. And I was hoping to actually ask you that and I forgot. So, uh, now that I remember, uh, we'll throw it in here like two hours in or so. Settle in. Settle in. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked Garrett waiting for you to ask this question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Hey, on a side note, I want to first start by saying that yes, Caleb, you are stubborn. Um, if you were wondering, um, If anyone else is wondering, um, (laughs) okay. Secondly, um, 
<laughs> getting back on task here because I got a, um, a problem to solve um, with this definition of a drill. Uh, so when me and Caleb had this conversation a few years ago, so I had, was in the middle of my master's degree from Xavier University and, and uh, I, I realized quickly that using the word drill was unacceptable in any context. Like you, like I was deducted points by using the word drill and like, I didn't, I didn't like, it wasn't like a conscious thought for me. Like utilize using the word drill was just like second nature. Everyone uses it. Um, until we finally got to like sport pedagogy, um, course. And we started to really like peel back the layers of, um, you know, like what is a drill and what is a task or Caleb said game activity is what I used to, um, call them. And, uh, so basically like how they would define drill is that it is rigid, highly structured. Um, it allows for no dynamic movements, um, or decisions. There's no information, um, within this drill, um, it was more like command style coach rather than a cooperative coaching style. Um, I, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Like it was all those characteristics, um, would, would be, would be used to define the word drill. And so once I realized that I'm like, yeah, well, that makes sense. I, I don't want to be using drills because, um, that's not something that's going to transfer into a game. So I, I made a, and Chad, Chad gives me a hard time too. Like, I guess every single day, he's like, your willingness to not use the word drill is unbelievable. He's like, I don't know how you do it. He's like, it's incredible. He's like, he's like, maybe I need to like pick up this and remove the the term drill from my vocabulary. But anyway, that's, that's pretty much it. And, and we, uh, last thing we were at the movement meetup at the ABCA. And I think Tyler had said that they don't use the word drill and me and Caleb like looked across the room at each other and we just smiled and just moved our eyes back <laughs> because we had that conversation so many times. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's really interesting from the standpoint of when you think about it, the reason that we default towards drill is because we want discipline. Like, like I think the term comes from the military yeah. and like more disciplined armies tended to perform better in the field. And so the question becomes, how do you have discipline? Because we believe discipline is important, but what does that look like if we aren't using the term drill in the way that, you know, they were using it? Like, are we giving up discipline? Um, personally, I don't think so, but I would be curious to, to hear your guys' thoughts. I think just because you're using the word drill... Uh, doesn't mean that you can't be relentless in your pursuit of the highest level of athleticism that's going to be able to help you in your sport. Um, I think that's that's the best way that I can answer it. Yeah, I think under like discipline as in like the the willingness under any set of circumstances or any context you are able to execute what's expected of you for, for instance, like if, 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 you know, the specifying information is the spin on the ball, like how disciplined are you in like attuning to that information? 
or staying focused on it or, I mean, cause this is where I'm like, okay, if, if we were the military and like, I wanted you to be really good at loading your weapon. Well, instead of just drilling you on like doing the same thing over and over again until it became second nature, I would try to make every rep, like how many different situations could I put you in for you to be able to reload your weapon if it got jammed? Like how many different, because like to me, that's where all I'm doing and I'm still instilling discipline and like uh, the the athlete or the soldier's ability to do to do uh, the task, but they're having to do it in multiple different ways that they would be expected to do it in in the actual real thing. Um, and so, at least to me, that's I do think that you can have discipline. It's it's more of a discipline to the process and the approach of like what you were speaking to what Caleb was saying of the pursuit of excellence. Um, but the process is going to look different. It's going to mirror the, I mean, cause everybody says this, I like, you know, you have a plan when it comes to war, but like war is chaos. Like, and so similarly, I think we have to apply or like, there are things that we can take from that, but also that EcoD views things so differently than how traditionally things have been trained. Um, and so I think there's just a ton of benefit or that we're not by moving away from drills and calling it drills, we're not losing discipline um, by doing so. Mm -hmm. I think so too. Use the military example. I mean, a lot of military work and not all of it, of course, but like they've moved large, like a, a large part of it has moved into a lot of simulations mm -hmm. and that's a very integral part of them being prepared for war. Um, is for them to do that with regularity and to be put in all kinds of different situations. If, if, if you will, that's the ecological dynamics version of like their training. Um, and that doesn't mean they don't have to know the basics of how to take apart their weapon and clean it and put it back together. I mean, they still need to be able to do that on a very baseline level, but, uh, that's not ultimately what's going to lead to them being successful in the field of battle. And I, I I think traditionally, obviously, that was that was the thought. I mean, you know, you think back to how wars used to be fought when you line up soldiers shoulder to shoulder and you just walk straight against someone and you say, hey, we're just going to walk right into you. We're going to have our little drummer boy on the end of here and, and carry our flag. And we're just going to keep shooting until until like more people on one side are dead than the other. Like, and we look back on that and we see that being so stupid now, but that's kind of like, to me, that's, that's kind of what I picture when I think of military drill work. You're just marching for the sake of doing it because you're, because you're supposed to do it. And then one of the ways that, you know, going back to, you know, I feel like the, the, um, the national anthem should be playing behind me right now, going back to the revolutionary war. One of the ways that we won is because we had militia and we started fighting differently and we said, we can't do this and beat the British this way. So it was because of that change and because uh, of starting to see things differently um, that and, – and, and we should learn from that as far as like thinking about drill work differently and thinking about learning and developing the right sort of environment so we can beat the British. Yeah, kind of building off that, 
um, you know, kind of the discipline and kind of this ideology. What you brought up, Garrett, earlier of how, you know, putting a certain person in different environments, so to speak, for just the main purpose of, you know, reloading the weapon in different environments. So I guess my question is, you know, how can we get said person to understand that you know, the main focus in this scenario is um, reloading that weapon, but being able to understand that you may have to reload your weapon in 100 to 1,000 different environments. I think it's like the, this analogy or this metaphor is, is important because of to steal from, from Steve Johnson, you know, talking about life being a single player game. Like when I think of, ways to define discipline the best way i can come up with that is is like it's an internal struggle to essentially maintain your focus or your aim maintain you know the initial plan that you had in, in respect to the task and like how well you hold on to what's important in every situation right and i and i think of like okay a, a maybe a bad but practical example is like it's harder to wake up every day and be like you know, I, I just have to make my bed. It's a lot bigger of a problem. It's like, I have to keep my entire house in order. And, and under that bigger responsibility of keeping my house in order, like making your bed falls under that. And so I think like in all these situations, it kind of challenges you to, to always consider what is important to care about in that situation. And so, I mean, for me, I, I think, you know, discipline, being associated with drills and, and, and I'm, I'm so happy that that came up because before this conversation, I was just on Twitter and I was like, dude, I, I think I hate that word because it, it's, it's so, you know, we've already talked about it, but it, it's, it, it limits what a task can be and it limits all the possibilities of what you can accomplish within task and constraint and, and with, with design for that matter. And, to, to narrow the focus of like, well, this is the only thing that matters is achieving this. And I think what bothers me about it most is I think drill is associated closely with excessive repetition and mindless repetition. But I know someone mentioned it earlier. Um, and I think this goes beyond baseball in general, but like, you know, you have to execute tasks with meaning, like they have to be meaningful. And I, and I think like, you know, to be searching for meaning in all the actions or, or all the processes that we, we, take on like you're going to find yourself you know chasing down things that are that are going to be helpful or things that are going to be useful rather than you know just having things for the sake of having them yeah i would just i would just add on to that um you know that that meaning obviously comes from the the context which we place it under um so i think like having an understanding of what the ultimate you know defining what success is and defining what it is that we're trying to accomplish with whatever activity that we're doing and whatever level of transfer that we have and, um, or that we want from that. And the context that goes along with that is what's going to provide, like Ryan was saying, what is going to provide that meaning, um, and allow us to determine whether we were successful in accomplishing that. Um, or if it's something that we need to be aware of, so that we can then make an adjustment as coaches and facilitators so that we are doing right by our players so that they uh, have the opportunity to be, to be in a better environment that's going to develop them 
more ho- more holistically and uh, more completely uh, and something that's going to last for longer. So I wanted to kind of wrap on uh, this question of given this down period, um, what have you guys been learning or diving into that has either challenged your thinking, changed it or solidified it further in, uh, in terms of like a belief or whatever? For me, it's probably application. I think I've, I've been diving into uh, like eco- ecological perspective for a while now and you know, having this downtime to kind of see like, how would I actually apply that day to day? And how would you do it in, a, in an individual setting when you have sessions with, you know, one or two hitters, or maybe a small group of hitters versus, you know, how you manage, you know, all of these factors in a team setting. Um, and it's kind of driven me towards, you know, the part that that I haven't personally explored as much was this psychological and emotional side, and how much of a role that plays. Um, because I, I think with this time, I've been able to think, I was like, well, what is it that, you know, me as a hitting coach, like, what do I want to give a hitter? And, you know, I was never a guy who hit a ton of home runs. I was never a guy who, as a coach, figured out, like, oh, I, I know the secret to give everybody, you know, warning track power or home run power. Um, but the thing I think I, the thing I think I found as a player, or I, I know I found as a player before I it stopped was, like, how do you, perform despite the pressure how do you focus despite all of these factors that can play in you know whether it's a coach whether it's parents whether it's just the pressure to perform to like living up to your own expectations um and how to better navigate like psychological and emotional factors by integrating them into the training setting by by trying to like to me that's that's the most important part of representative design in in my perspective is okay like what are the factors that place pressure on the athlete that inhibit performance like what are the things that that motivate them what are the things that pull them off track because if i think we can we can place a little more importance there i think like technique will come i think mechanics will find their way i think approach will find their way like once they know how to navigate you know what they're feeling and and how they're thinking i love that i love that that's awesome uh, so what, so what I've been kind of gathering from all this is a little bit different and it's, you know, not as much from a hitting or a baseball standpoint, but a little more of a life standpoint. But I think it applies to a lot of the principles that we've been talking about. You know, we, it, it, it goes without saying, and everybody knows this right now, I'm stating the obvious. This has been a very strange, unique time in all of our lives. And, and, uh, I think what it's done the most for me and what it's really taught me and had me to start thinking about very practically um, is how we as people are designed to be problem solvers. And we as people, uh, and for me, I'm not sure if this reaffirmed things for me more or if it just taught me in a really different, very real, uh, like in your face sort of way, kind of with everything that has gone on and what we're all having to live through right now. But uh, how how human beings have the ability to adapt if we are forced into it and how we adapt to our environment, whether it's athletically or uh, health-wise, economically, um, from a family standpoint, friends, doing our careers. I mean, I mean, we're, I mean, we're doing this right now, which is something that would not have taken place if, if things, if we weren't forced into it. So what it's kind of taught me is that the, all these principles that we talk about from a hitting standpoint and from an athlete develop 
from an athlete development standpoint, really apply to life in general. And it's been a good, I don't know if it's a reminder because I, I don't know that I've really thought about it before in these, like to, to this deep of a level, but it's been a good like uh, uh, ag- acknowledgement at the very least that we are forced uh, into doing these things as people. Um, and the better that we get at this, the better we're going to be as coaches in general, once we do get back to normal, and then the better we're going to be able to understand it and be able to implement different training strategies and environments for our athletes, because we understand this on like a very real level, that's much bigger than baseball. So I think kind of taking those life application things, not trying to get too deep, but it's just what I've been really thinking about a lot. The last like few weeks is how adaptable human beings truly can be. Um, and it's really, really cool to see. It's really encouraging. Um, but it's also something that we can learn from and see how much better we can be moving forward in the future. Building off of kind of what Caleb was talking about. Um, me, it's along the lines of, you know, now I'm starting to understand how much, how little we have control over in life. And with this going on, you know, we want to be able to say, all right, let's figure out a way to play sports. Let's figure out a way to do this. But, you know, this this time is helping myself understand a little bit better that we don't have much control. And really, we just got to take action on what we can control. And what we truly can control is our mind. So being able to kind of mold your mind in a manner that can optimize whatever it is that you're doing once life returns to normal. That's what I've been thinking a lot about lately. For me, the thing that, uh, that is that I'm currently like learning and understanding more. I know like Sean has definitely, uh, Mishka has definitely been encouraging me, encouraging me to understand like what is embodied cognition and Rob Gray, um, shared on his podcast that he did with us a great book for that. And that kind of helped that kind of click in terms of like the fact that there is this reciprocal relationship with our mind and our body and the environment. And so to, to kind of what, to, to build off of what Robert was saying, we also like in order to sharpen our mind, we also need to sharpen our, our body. We also have some level of control over our body and we, sh- we should learn to understand how to gain better control over that because it'll also help us to have better control over our mind. And so those two things are linked. And I guess that's why I would say I would encourage people to really dive into, into that. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly the, the name of the book that Rob um, recommended. I think it's like how the mind, uh, knows itself or something like that. But, uh, I'll, you guys can, people who are listening can go back and check out that episode. It's in the show notes for that. Um, but I really encourage people to dive into these ideas and these concepts, uh, regarding ecological dynamics and whatnot, because I do think that it will greatly help enhance what you do, um, on a holistic level, um, both personally and with your athletes. Um, so, that's that's kind of what I've been um, learning and thinking about. So, Nick, what you got for? Me? Okay, <laughs> um, yeah, I think for me, you know, given my coaching experience, there's been environmental constraints on me, and I've had to learn how to coach without really any type of technology. And that's not by choice. That's just by, by environment. That's just by my experiences, um, as a coach. 
And so I've really had to be creative in, in, in my pursuit of providing some objective feedback for players to really um, establish a data-driven approach. And so I've done those things, and now I'm getting an opportunity to really uh, apply or implement really my player development system with technology and also implement really all of the, the task ideas that I have and, um, and especially at, at Chad's um, facility. And that's been really helpful for me, again, like especially considering my goals in coaching. Um, I definitely want to be in an environment that um, – values technology and and um so i want to be able to um establish and implement a player development system that utilizes technology responsibly um and uh, also be able to establish tasks um on a specific level and also more of a general level um and that'd be according to you know hitter buckets so that's basically what I've been doing right now. I've been here. We're, we're using the uh, track software and we're um, using that for remote athletes and also um, in facility athletes. And so I'm basically just implementing that player development system. And instead of using my um, my non-technology approach, I'm, I'm utilizing the hit tracks and the 4D motion, um, DK um, and other uh, tech to provide the information that would be necessary and appropriate for player development. So that's, that's what I'm trying to do now. And it's been a, it's been a bumpy process, like trying to, trying to figure out and and navigate that and and kind of put it all together, um, has been a, has been a fun process, but it's, um, it's one that I'm very, it's one I'm very thankful for to kind of like really just establish this process, um, and then on the task design standpoint, I've realized quickly, given the autonomy to just really try anything, I've realized that some tasks that I've designed have just sucked and some have been pretty good. So uh, it's been good to really be able to have this support and uh, in the environment um, to really just test and retest some of my ideas. So that's kind of what I'm doing now. Sweet. All right. Um to, to finish up and to wrap, where can people find each of you? I know we've, we've said it before, but I think it's important um, that uh, if you guys are not following any one of these uh, people, whether it's Robert, Caleb, Brian, or Nick, you should definitely follow them on social. So where can people find you, um, Caleb? And we'll just kind of go through through the line that way. I'm on Twitter at CABNY18, um, where you could search for Caleb Abney, I'll probably pop up. It's not that common of a name. So that's me. Sweet. Brian? Uh, Also on Twitter, uh, Brian underscore Pozos. And that's pretty much all I use. (laughs) You also have a a medium, don't you? You have a blog. blog. I do. I do. But it's it's a work in progress. I'm still trying to to write more there. Fair enough. That that link is in, in my Twitter bio. So if people are interested, you can look there. Sweet. Uh, Nick? Um, yeah, so I use Twitter. You can find me at, at coach underscore ask you, and that's a S C U E. And, um, also feel free to shoot me an email, 
Um, that is A-S-C-U-E-N-R at gmail.com. And if you're interested in some of my blogs, that would be on um, Chad Longworth's page. Good stuff. Good stuff. Robert, where can people f- find uh, Mr. Fry? Yeah, so they can find me on Twitter at RobertFry40, F-R-E-Y. Um, I, there's no space. There's no space. <laughs> there's no space. Um, so at RobertFry40. And uh, same on YouTube channel. That's also posted on my Twitter. I do uh, weekly videos with uh, coding with baseball data, things along those lines. Um, just my name, Robert Fry, and that one does have a space. Sweet. And then you can find me at gboium zero one on Twitter. Um, so, again, thank you guys so much for jamming for such a long time. Uh, it's it was great. Um, hopefully, people enjoyed the depth at which we uh, explored hitting uh, tonight. So thank you guys. Much appreciated. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks Garrett. Thanks Robert. Thanks guys. Mm -hmm.